On January 20th, 2021, Joseph Robinette Biden placed his hand on his family's Bible and was sworn in as the 46th President of the United States. He assumed office in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th insurrection in the midst of an ongoing pandemic that has hit America harder than many other nations, facing a polarized Senate and indeed a polarized country. What has he done so far? And what does it mean for America and the world? I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on Biden's first 100 days. Hello and welcome to the City Politics Podcast. I'm in the virtual studio with Konstantin Vossing. How are you doing today, KV? Fantastic. Thank you. And we are delighted to have with us Laura Ann Viola. Laura Ann Viola is a professor of political science at the Free University Berlin. She researches and teaches on U.S. foreign policy, international organizations, and international relations theory. Her most recent book is The Closure of the International System, How International Institutions Create Political Equalities and Hierarchies. And she has a forthcoming book called Trust and Transparency in the Age of Surveillance. In addition to journal articles and outlets such as International Studies Quarterly, Laura is a frequent commentator on U.S. foreign policies and transatlantic relations for German and European media outlets. She is a native New Yorker and an adopted Berliner. Laura, welcome to the show. How are things in Berlin? Great. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Now, before we get in too deep, let's set things up a little. We have a custom on the podcast called Explain It Like I'm Five, where our guests enlighten me on the day's topic. So perhaps you can tell me why people care so much about what happens in the first 100 days of the presidency. Well, the short answer is uh, the first 100 days are not particularly significant in any in any real way. They're not legally significant. And, you know, it's really a tradition to look at the first 100 days. So um, it's a tradition that goes back to FDR. Um, FDR, in fact, introduced the the phrase the first 100 days in a radio address in which he reflected on what his administration had achieved. And so from there, it's sort of become a tradition to look at the first 100 days. Now, um, the expectations were high on Roosevelt because he entered office during a crisis. And of course, um, he also followed a highly unpopular president, President Hoover. So, you know, some of the conditions that um, Biden also faces today, uh, coming into office in a crisis and following on a highly unpopular president, and in fact, Roosevelt's first 100 days really did lead to the introduction of a large number of policies that would uh, come to be known as a New Deal. Now, today, the first 100 days are considered something like a honeymoon, and empirical studies have shown that presidents tend to get a lot more done in the first 100 days or, or can get more done in the first 100 days than necessarily they can do in the rest of their um, of their terms. So legislatively, they have sort of a bonus period. But most of all, it's simply a moment to reflect on president's leadership style and agenda. And beyond that, I think we shouldn't read too much into it as in terms of the political meaningfulness of it. Great. Thank you very much. I think that's a really excellent way of explaining why we look at the first hundred days as sort of symbolically important and narratively important for the development of an American presidency. But before we get into Biden's legislative agenda, both domestic and foreign policy related, we need to look into that crystal ball. So I'm going to pass it over to Constantine, and he is going to deliver us some pretty difficult questions. 
All right, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting in the torturous seat again, as always. It's uh, it's great to force academics to you know reduce complex issues to just a yes or no response. So please humor me, and we'll have uh, two experts this time. Uh, of course, Laura, uh, who's in the studio, the virtual studio. And then also David, who is not just our co-host today, but also uh, one of our two resident experts. So I'm going to ask crystal ball questions, um, 10 of them again, like always. And we'll start with Laura and then uh, ask uh, David for his response. And then after the first five questions, we'll switch it up, you know, to make sure that you know, everyone has the, the benefit of a little bit of hindsight. at least. So let's start the crystal ball. Question number one, Laura. Once President Biden has left office, will we look back and say, yes, his first 100 days in office already looked pretty much like the entire four years of his presidency? I'm going to say no. I think that uh, he has had some remarkable successes in the first 100 days that are going to be difficult to replicate later. David? No. Question number two. Judging from the first 100 days, is Biden already the second coming of the 32nd president, Franklin D. Roosevelt? That's funny. So I, I said the first 100 days go back to Roosevelt and the New Deal, and people are already calling Biden's politics the new New Deal, right? Um, I don't think he's going to get there. No. David? I'm going to be a contrarian and say yes. All right. Question number three. In foreign policy, how will we characterize President Biden looking back four years from now, just a purveyor of America first with fewer diplomatic blunders? No, I don't think we'll see him that way. I'm not sure if that's a good assessment though, but I think, no, we won't see him that way. David? Also no. Are we going to see some major resistance and street protest against President Biden and his agenda? Laura? No. David? I'm gonna say yes, but I got caveats. Question number five, are we going to see any large scale violent action against Biden and his agenda? Maybe something similar to what happened during the Capitol riot earlier this year. Laura? No, I don't see it. David? Yeah, I think we might. So let's switch it around a little bit, you know, to give, uh, to give Laura, uh, the, you know, the benefit of a little bit of hindsight at least. Question number six, David, in the year 2040, will the term Biden doctrine be as common and widespread as Truman doctrine, Brezhnev doctrine, or America first? I'm going to say no. Laura? No, no. Question number seven. In the high school history books of the 2060s, will the Biden presidency be treated as a mere appendix to the Obama years? David? No. Laura? No. Question number eight. In the next four years, will there ever be more than 10 Republicans in the Senate that support a controversial Biden policy? David. No big asterisks. All right, Laura. No, and no asterisks. Will President Biden preside over a significant Democratic loss in the midterm elections? No. Laura. Yes. Will Biden have another first 100 days, this time as returning president, in four years? David. No? No. Laura. Oh, you know, the first 100 days only apply to the first term. <laughs> All right, we'll start a new tradition here. Okay, yeah. okay. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say no. It's a hard one, though. I'll say no. Thank you so much. Um, hey, that was almost the first like uh, complete sweep that we've had on a, on a crystal ball. Yeah, I was going for no 10, no 10, 10 for 10 on that. 
Now let's talk about Biden and FDR first, if that's okay, uh, because that was our, the, the starting point for the, the whole notion of the first 100 days in office. And Laura already, already explained that uh, uh, to us. Um, and we've sort of discussed that, that, um, that, that idea, that argument that has also been, um, been very prominent in the media for various reasons, both the nature of the times and the way in which the, the president acted. Um, that um, Biden has uh, has some surprising similarities uh, to uh, FDR uh, and his um, in his conduct in office. Um, um, now let's elaborate a little bit on that. Um, is that is that warranted? Uh, is Biden actually the the second coming of FDR? And uh, both of you said no. Um, can you can you tell us, Laura, why? You know, there would be potential for Biden to um, to play that role. I, the reason I said no is because I think that he will be stymied in really pushing that agenda through um, by Congress and the Republicans. But actually, if you look at what he's doing and the position he's in, there are quite a lot of similarities to FDR. I think, you know, he he passed the COVID stimulus package, the, you know, $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. And um, he, he, there are a few interesting things about that. The first is that I think that, you know, it was, it's a major, major uh, stimulus package, right? And um, it comes at a moment of crisis in the United States, and it's quite popular, even, and, okay, so that's one interesting thing, it's popular, and I think it has maybe even opened the road for Biden to um, engage in more government spending. So it's sort of, you know, given the country a bit of a taste for what this kind of thing can do. So it, he might have sort of um, increased the willingness of voters to to consider this kind of large scale legislation, which and very expensive government spending, which he has on the horizon with his new infrastructure bill. But the, the other interesting thing about it is that the stimulus package, although it's popular in the United States, was pa uh, passed completely along partisan lines. So I think that tells you something about his ability to get the next things done. Now, the next big thing on the horizon is the infrastructure plan. And that that plan is also, you know, a plan of about $2 trillion and it, as the way he presented it at least, and it goes well beyond infrastructure and really aims to reshape the economy to um, help overcome problems of economic inequality. It, it has climate elements and it. it's really highly ambitious. It's quite progressive, more progressive than Biden's own legacy really. And if you were to able to really get that through, then we might see something comparable to the kind of change that we saw under FDR. The thing is though, he won't be able to get that bill through in its current form for sure. And you know, the proposals he has and you know, might get some of it through. The question is what will it look like at the end really? And even if he gets that through, you know, are there other things coming down the pipeline that he'll be able to get through? So I think to really have the sort of the, the scope of something like what FDR did, um, Biden needs some other, a different kind of political support than he actually has. So I think that's where there'll be a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with anything that Laura has just said. I think there are parallels with FDR. Uh, certainly, he is coming into his presidency facing a monumental crisis, and he seems to be dedicated at using the power of the state to combat that crisis. And this is something that, you know, if we look at the trend of politics that took over the United States in, with Reagan and afterwards, this does seem to be something new. The question is whether he can live up to his ambitions for all of the reasons that Laura's just said. 
Uh, certainly, Republicans in the Senate are going to be very difficult to work with when it comes to passing any sort of ambitious legislation around infrastructure, jobs, and especially green, uh, the green agenda, uh, which has become sort of totemic uh, for opposition and right-wing American politics. Uh, the other point of difference that I sort of gesture towards is on foreign policy, uh, whereas FDR was stuck with trying to pull the American people into the international sphere around the Second World War uh, out of isolationism. We could say, yeah, perhaps Biden's trying to do that, but he has the added element of repairing America's relationships with its allies that have been neglected over the past four years by the Trump administration, which is quite different than sort of asserting America as a player in global politics. And it will require different skills. Uh, so I, I can see the parallels. The other thing I would say is, you know, I'm I'm not sure whether Joe Biden is as transformative in his politics as FDR was, right? FDR embraced a lot of, you know, quite uh, revolutionary positions in combating the Great Depression, and certainly Biden's track record over his political career doesn't show him as a sort of gold-plated progressive. Uh, but I will agree that he seems to be taking a progressive turn now that he is in the White House. So there are parallels, but there's also significant dissimilarities between the two, uh, two politicians. Before we get to the issue of uh, foreign policy, um, and that's going to be a major topic of conversation uh, afterwards, let's focus on the one thing that both of you said is the major obstacle in Biden's path to becoming the second coming of uh, FDR, and that's the role of partisanship in the American political system. The fact that uh, he will have a hard time getting his uh, agenda through uh, Congress, uh, especially because of the distribution of majorities in the, um, in, in the Senate, the situation in the Senate. Now, um, you know, to look a little bit at, uh, at the, the FDR and uh, Biden comparison in terms of sheer legislative activity, uh, I found it quite interesting um, uh, to read today that FDR passed 99 executive orders in his first 100 days in office and 76 laws that require uh, support from Congress. Um, uh, for Biden, it was 42 executive orders, um, and they might have had larger scale too. So, you know, but that's still fairly comparable, but only 11 laws. And while that is more laws than, you know, than, than the previous president, um, I'm not saying that he ever did, but a, a greater focus on legislative activity than the previous president, it's still not a lot. Um, uh, and both of you also answered uh, in the negative to the question whether there will ever be more than 10 Republicans in the Senate that support a controversial Biden policy. Now, obviously, I use the 10 because that's how many you need to get past the filibuster. Um, is there really no hope for uh, a reduction in polarization um, within the legislature in general and specifically uh, in the Senate, Laura? Well, I don't know if there's no hope that's sort of a sweeping statement, but I, I do see that in the short term, we're not going to, I think, solve that problem. So there are a few interesting things um, in what you said. One of the things is that we've seen over the past several presidencies uh, shift towards executive orders over um, legislative um, activity because of the problem of gridlock in Congress. So that's, I think, um, really right on trend. And in part, that's, you know, that is a tradition that comes from FDR, but we see it um, in, especially used by George W. Bush and then um, Obama because of, so George W. Bush, because, you know, in, in the 
wake of 9-11, when he wanted to push for uh, very quick action, we saw in, in Obama's um, tenure because he faced a lot of resistance from Republicans. And I think um, we'll see it as well um, in the Biden administration for similar reasons. And this is a trend that has to do with polarization. In terms of polarization, you know, um, Biden campaigned on the promise of um, returning to bipartisanship, right? He said he's the guy who can bring both sides together because he's worked with both sides before and he values um, consensus leadership and trying to work across the aisle. Um, but what Republicans are saying now is that he hasn't done any of that, right? They're, they're big sort of gripe with his first hundred days is um, not necessarily with the stimulus bill directly, because like I said, that that has quite some support, but rather that he did it without any Republican votes and that he's pushing his agenda ahead. He's moving it to the left. It's becoming more progressive and he's not reaching out to Republicans. So the Republicans are certainly pushing this idea that he's not living up to his bipartisanship. And on the other hand, um, there are not that many uh, Republicans that uh, Biden can really reach out to because of the nature of polarization. And it's interesting, I think, to notice that polarization in the United States means um, in general that the middle ground between the ide ideological middle ground between left and right is sort of empty, right? Or it's there, there are fewer actors there and both parties are moving to the extremes of the ideological spectrum. But what's interesting about that is that it's more true for Republicans than for Democrats. So Republicans tend to be further away from the middle than Democrats. And that makes it, um, I think, the problem even more tricky for Biden uh, to solve. Now, I'm not saying that there's no solutions to polarization. I mean, there are, you know, things that could be done. And um, one of them is to try to push policy forward where there is some consensus. So, for example, among Republican voters, there is support for climate change action, right? Much less so among uh, Republican legislators, interestingly, but there is some support for that. There's also among Republican legislators uh, traditionally support for infrastructure bills. So if Biden can carve out some space there, maybe we can move towards um, a little bit more bipartisanship, but there are too many other structural reasons why there's polarization right now in the in the Congress. I just, maybe as a last point, I, I think it's, it's interesting to um, listen to Biden's speech yesterday, right, in, in, in the joint session of Congress, where he focused, um, when he talked about the infrastructure bill, he really pitched it in a way that could be palatable to Republican voters, maybe not the legislators, but the, the voters, right? In terms of this is good for working class people. This is, these are uh, measures that will help um, exactly those voters that Trump was speaking to. So if he can do some of that, he may be able to move in the bipartisan direction, but overall, I think the structural conditions uh, don't speak in favor for reducing polarization anytime soon. When it comes to bipartisanship, it's going to be a very large challenge for the Biden administration simply based on how, well, cultish the Republican Party has become over the past year. Uh, so long as the Republican Party has a ma the MAGA wing in it and it is dominating so the more moderate wing, working across the aisle will become a challenge for anyone who is worried about getting primary. So there are strong incentives for Republican legislators not to work with the Biden administration. I think the Biden administration, though, has a way to deal with this, and it's exactly what Laura was saying. It's going over the heads of legislators and appealing directly to the voters, right? By making pitches on COVID relief and on the infrastructure bill, 
which are broadly popular, you know, we're talking about 60% plus approval ratings in the American people, they can say that they're being bipartisan by supporting legislation that Americans want. And the people who aren't being bipartisan are the Republican legislators who are not representing the interests of their voters. And this might not really be an effective way to get legislation through in the next two years, but it does become a very interesting campaigning tool for the midterms. Because when people say, well, why hasn't there been progress made? Why is the economy still slow? Uh, why is COVID still a problem? The Biden administration can say, well, look, we've been trying to pass all of these very popular bills. You want to know why they're not going through? Look at Ted Cruz. And uh, people might be persuaded to consider voting Democrat or switching. But this that's very hypothetical. But I think there is a strategy behind this by pitching uh, the infrastructure bill as a jobs bill, by pitching it to middle America, by pitching it to people who were perhaps, you know, Reagan uh, Democrats, right? People who voted, who voted for Reagan, who voted for Trump, perhaps, uh, but are blue collar, are working in industrial or post-industrial jobs. Now, what does this mean for the Republican Party? You know, I, I honestly have no idea because looking at the Republican Party today, I feel like someone who would look at the uh, Communist Party of China in the 1970s and try to understand what's happening within the Politburo during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, it seems really difficult to parse out where people are standing within the Republican Party. I mean, certainly you can see people like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney might be amenable to working with the president, but they're a really small faction of the old Republican Party. And when we talk about traditional wings of the Republican Party, like the Rockefeller wing, these don't exist anymore, right? Uh, perhaps in the imaginations of some people in uh, you know, the Upper West Side of New York City, but that's about it. So it becomes very difficult. Um, and I think the Biden administration is probably realizing that pursuing a bipartisan agenda in their traditional getting votes from the other side probably isn't going to work. And it's going to lead, if they pursue that path, it will lead them to a situation that Obama was in, which was obstruction, obstruction, obstruction. So they're going over their heads. And I think that's a clever move. Personally. Can I just follow up on that? I think there are really some interesting points there, um, David. I think one of the things is that Biden's success so far is also in part because the GOP is just in chaos. Right? I mean, it's divided. You don't, I mean, they're not, they can't organize themselves, right? The, what could they, they couldn't find an argument against the stimulus bill, really. The most they could say was it wasn't bipartisan. Like, you know, they, no one asked us, you know, that's kind of uh, not a very strong political argument. And the other thing you mentioned about resistance to Obama is also interesting because has to the extent that the GOP remains sort of disorganized, Biden has a better chance of moving forward. And one of the things that he really should avoid doing is uniting them against him. And so one of the things that Obama did with his healthcare initiative is that he gave the Republicans real talking points for uniting against him and, and bringing the case to the people. So I, I also think it's really smart of Biden and his team to, to pitch his forthcoming uh, policy agenda as something that is good for exactly for those voters that the Republicans would otherwise try to sort of mobilize against him. Because, it, you know, as long as he doesn't give the Republicans a reason to unite against him, he could use their disorganization at least to make some inroads, right? If, if not real bipartisanship. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. If the Republicans' best talking point is that Joe Biden is going to try to ban hamburgers, then <laughs> right. GOP is in some big trouble. Uh, because people are not going to believe that. And Tucker Carlson can scream as much as he wants in Fox News. That's not going to get an electoral coalition that will deliver the Republicans the White House, 
let alone the House of Representatives or regaining control of the Senate. Reminds me of where's the beef quote, right? <laughs> Well, you guys are, uh, are awfully optimistic for two people who prefer to answer no to most questions, right? So I, I appreciate that. Now, I have a few caveats this time, and this is unusual because on this podcast, I'm usually the one who is optimistic and, uh, uh, and you know, others have all the caveats. Um, now, first of all, I thought that um, the, 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 the points that you made about the situation of the Republican Party are very well taken. Uh, I want to go even one step further. What I found most remarkable about the Biden uh, first 100 days in office was actually that all of a sudden it felt like we're talking about policy again. And, and I don't think it, would, it just felt like that. It was like that. All of a sudden, it felt like we were back in the 1990s or the, the Obama years, the, you know, the, the period when, you know, there was policy uh, uh, differences between the two major parties, but, uh, you know, some stuff was also heated, uh, some debates were heated, but it was about policy and that already sort of, we, we lost a little bit of that already during the W years, a little bit more actually during the Obama years, and then it completely disappeared during the Trump years, and now we're back talking about policy and in addition to the the, uh, the disarray of the Republican Party, the fact that it is uh, fractured in the ways in which you described, I think they also really need to learn again how to talk about policy, and they cannot do that. Uh, they have a really hard time, and you guys pointed that out, they have a really hard time uh, talking about uh, policies in, in, in a way that is convincing to people. Um, so that being said, I think that actually is problematic for the prospects of, uh, of a Biden strategy of going public, um, because for the following two reasons. First of all, going public, that is, um, you know, passing, bypassing sort of the, 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 the gridlock in the legislature to sort of push through a legislative agenda by sailing through unpopular support. At the end of the day, you still need those 10 Republicans, you know, to, to cast yes. The question is, even if they are really pressured by the public, will they do that? Well, um, they will only do that if they feel they can gain from it politically. The fact that they don't know how to talk about policy anymore actually means that they are less likely to do that because that's not the, the parameters with which they approach politics anymore. So that is one caveat. Um, the other caveat would be um, that there is a, uh, a, a Republican base, those people that vote in primaries, um, that are nothing like the median voter um, that uh, you know you can actually convince and you need to rely on in order to get reelected. Uh, most Republican legislators they later they they, they 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 try to appeal to that to that primary uh, population and that is very different um, uh, from from the from the median voter and the population at large and the, the primary population that votes for them in, in primaries those are not the people that are convinced by oh we need to get things done. We need to be reconciled and we need to, you know, talk about policy. Now, those are the people that want, um, in, at least in, in, in most areas of the country, uh, those are the people that want um, more of the non-policy talk and more of the, uh, more of the Trump type of, of rhetoric. Uh, and then uh, uh, thirdly, third caveat is that will Biden actually manage to convince the public to support his agenda. And you were very optimistic about that, but I want to note something that I found very interesting. Um, and that is uh, when you look at Biden's approval ratings, um, you know, different questions, you know, do you like Biden and his agenda? Do you support him? But also if uh, the question is specifically about his policies and real clear politics just had a survey 
that asked about his political agenda rather than him as a person, 53% of voters said, yes, we support his agenda. We think it's good. 41% said no. And when you ask about him as a person, you get similar results. So I find it fascinating that those could be the 40% that were the permanent Trump support of the past four years that were unwavering. Because if you look at Trump's support during the four years, there was a, almost a flat line of 40% of the population that would support him until the bitter end. So third caveat, can Biden actually manage to get enough public support in order, in order to put pressure on Republican legislators? Um, and then going back to the first two points, if he does that, will they actually cave into that pressure? So Laura, what do you think? Is that going to happen? Or is there at least a possibility for that to happen? Well, first of all, I didn't mean to come across as too optimistic. <laughs> no, I think those are all really good points. So it's interesting if you look at those numbers, if you um, look at the numbers by um, party affiliation, they look even worse, right? So you have even less support among Republicans in terms of popularity of Biden as a president and also for his policies. It's clear the country is highly polarized still. I think that so a number of things. On, on the one hand, it's true that I, what you noted at the very beginning is that the Biden administration has been remarkably disciplined and organized. And that has really uh, done a lot in terms of his ability to get things done. So if you just compare that to the beginning of the Trump administration, right, they started, they, they were surprised that they won. They had really no legislative experience. They had to spend a lot of time getting themselves together, right? And Biden was ready to hit the ground running, right? He His team was um, really experienced. I mean, obviously, himself has a lot of legislative experience. So I think that really is part of the reason why he was able to achieve the, the things that he did achieve. On the other hand, you know, we have to keep those achievements, you know, also in perspective. So on the one hand, the baseline against which we're measuring is pretty low to begin with, right? The Trump presidency in the beginning days of his presidency uh, in particular, where things were chaotic. Um, then, of course, we have the um, the COVID crisis and the stimulus bill, right, is a large piece of legislation. It wasn't easy to get through, but it's a big, con you have a, a crisis is also an opportunity to show the country uh, where he stands, right? So um, it was a win that was, you know, pretty clearly going to be popular and you know, give people checks, right? sort of not every president has an you know, opportunity to do that. And then the other thing that he's riding high on right now is his vaccination um, promise, right? He promised in his first 100 days to vaccinate 100 million people, and he more than doubled that in the first 100 days. So those are some accomplishments that he he's riding on right now that he won't be able to replicate again, right? Those are sort of one-off things that he gets. So I do think the road is going to be much more difficult from now on. I do think that, you know, as I said at the beginning when we were doing the questions that his success in going forward is going to depend a lot on what the Republicans do. And I don't anticipate he will get their support. So he's trying to go to the people. He's trying to take away their policy arguments because that's something he can do, right? But what he can't do is, is find a way to round them up and get them to vote for it with him in Congress. He, that's, that's, you know, what is he left with in terms of a strategy? I think that, you know, to the extent that the Republicans can't mount a really organized campaign against his policy that helps him, but that doesn't mean that he'll have an easy time of it. And it doesn't mean they won't be able to do that in the future. As I said, if, you know, depending on how he pushes the infrastructure campaign uh, policy agenda, he could 
wind up uniting the Republicans with talking points that, you know, really make it easy to vote against that legislation. They'll probably vote against it anyway. And that brings me to the, the final point, and that is, how long will he have the support in Congress to pass these this legislation? And my answer is not long, I don't think. I, you know, it's a very, very slim majority. And I don't think um, he'll have that for long, which I think will be a big hindrance to his uh, policy program, obviously. And I think one of the reasons is, um, as you said, because polarization in the United States is not, it's not just an ideological issue. So there are different ways we can think of polarization. One is ideological or policy polarization. And another is um, what political scientists are calling emotional or affective polarization. And it seems like a lot of polarization in the United States right now is um, feelings of negativity, negative partisanship, negativity towards the other side without consideration of the policy angle, right? The policy benefits that bipartisanship might bring you personally. That's something that Trump was able to mobilize in a, in a really major way. And I think one of the lessons the Republicans learned um, also from the last election is that that works. My negative partisanship works. So, you know, one of the things that Trump campaigned on was that if you let the Democrats win, you're going to have left-wing progressive policies that you don't want, right? And among a number of groups, that was very powerful. And to the extent that Republicans can now paint uh, Biden as actually being pushed to the left, right, and really um, enacting a much more progressive agenda than he himself would have maybe wanted because the, the left wing of his party is pushing him in that direction. They could really also cash in on that negative partisanship where people are fearful, right? It's a really, um, an, uh, there are some interesting empirical studies that show that um, Republicans fear Democrats. They fear what they're going to do. And the other way around, of course, Democrats really fear Republicans, especially after the Capitol riots, right? The Democrats were fearful for the country if you let Republicans in power. And that emotional partisanship, I think, um, still is um, uh, very powerful in American politics. And on that basis, I think the Republicans have a good chance of, um, or the Democrats have a good chance of losing the slim majority that they have. And Biden has a you know, a really uphill battle to get anything done in the future. So yeah, I didn't mean to be too optimistic on you there. And I think that, but I think that, you know, what we outlined earlier and also what David is saying about sort of trying to appeal to the voters, that's one strategy he does have available to him, right? And, and trying to avoid the talking points that will help the Republicans unite against him. Those are things he can do. You know, how effective that will be at the end of the day without the votes. You know? I'm just going to continue being a ray of sunshine, I think. Um, <laughs> One of the things that really struck me with Biden's first hundred days was I, I, I couldn't tell whether he was very good at his job or whether I had just become so used to incompetence that just someone clearing a very low threshold was enough to impress me. And I get the feeling that Biden is having a moment of redemption for the Beltway Insider, uh, the person who has spent their career in Washington who knows how to legislate and knows how to you know, get things done to sort of condense it into a very simple catchphrase. And American politics has been sort of, since Reagan, at least, there's been this idea that, oh, you can't trust people in Washington. They don't have the interests of the real American people uh, at heart. But if you know Biden can say, well, I got into office and then within a hundred days, I had you know, 225 million people get their first vaccination. Uh, if you have competent people in the White House, you can do things that will help Americans in a very tangible way, right? And I think that that is a powerful message to the American people. 
uh, especially people who are those independent swing voters, uh, people who might not like sort of the far left wing of, of the Democratic Party, but can recognize, you know, getting vaccinated is a good thing, can recognize that, uh, you know, repairing crumbling bridges in their cities is a good thing. And that pitch, I think, is going to be quite powerful, uh, especially given the state of the Republican Party. Uh, and I think, you know, both of you are quite right when you talk about this uh, sort of polarization that's happening. Uh, but every Republican legislator is going to be faced with a very difficult challenge. Do they appeal to the Marjorie Taylor Greene base, the Donald Trump base, which is very much, you know, in its own reality, right? Normal or the majority of Americans don't really like them. Uh, and are they going to embrace that wing of the party, thereby alienating the center? Or are they going to try to go to the center, thereby alienating that base? That's not an easy course for anyone to navigate in terms of electoral strategy. Now, of course, there is a whole bunch of voter suppression that's happening in the background. There's a whole lot of ways to combat majoritarian rule that the Republican Party has you know, spent a lot of time refining over the past decade. But I think that there is an optimistic course where Biden can do something quite rare in American politics, which is increase uh, the Democratic majority in the midterms. I can see that happening. I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility. I don't think it will be easy, but Biden has pretty good political instincts within Washington. And I think that is a reason to be optimistic that the back half of his four years could actually be more radical than the first half if he can blame the Republicans for things going wrong. And that is a trick, right? Because people tend to let the buck stop with the president. If the president can let the buck stop with uh, the Republican party, he's going to be on very good footing in 20, what is 2022. But this is also me being an overly optimistic liberal dreamer. I'm, I'm 100 percent uh, say that that's the case. So here's a scenario. What if you know Biden you know, pitches his infrastructure plan, right? And there has been support among Republicans for infrastructure. I mean, Trump campaigned on infrastructure. Right? He said he made it one of his policy agendas. So there should be some policy overlap possibilities there. The question is, what if Biden faces the choice of getting any infrastructure bill through versus the one he wants. So what if, you know, he can actually get something through, but he has to make uh, all those concessions that make it, you know, stripped of its progressive qualities so that, you know, he is some stripped down kind of infrastructure bill that doesn't let him make the kind of mark on the economy that he was hoping for, right? So the bill is designed to sort of reshape the economy to fight inequality to introduce new social welfare-like elements, right? But um, if he, he has to compromise on those to get it through, but that, but that is a real possibility, where does that leave us? I mean, that's, that's one scenario he might face, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an incredibly likely scenario that Biden's going to face. And this is going to make me sound like, uh, you know, you're Tony Blair's. They're going to have to do a lot of focus groups uh, at that point. You know, they're going to have to talk to voters, especially blue-collar voters in Pennsylvania, uh, in Philadelphia, in Wisconsin, and see what they think about it. You know, if they are on the side where Biden thinks that by doing nothing, he can get them on board in the midterms to support a more radical legislative agenda, then they would have to take a very hard choice and sit on their hands and blame it all on the Republicans, which would require a really, really aggressive media operation to do. Would Biden do that? Well, if you ask me that question, 
four months ago, I'd say no way. Biden is has always had this sort of appeal to the blue-collar Democratic voter, it's sort of been his brand, but at his heart, he's always been that centrist, work-across-the-aisle Democrat. Uh, and I'd say, well, Biden will go for the compromise package. I'm not sure that he would now, not on the basis of what he's done over the past 100 days and not on the basis of his already sort of proposed infrastructure deal. So I, you know, I would say it, it's really hard to, to sort of have a prognostication on that that I feel comfortable with because I can see Biden really putting the gears to the Republicans and doing it with his sort of million dollar smile in the Rose Garden and you know the Republicans curling in on themselves because they know they don't have a good argument about why they're blocking this agenda, especially if it's polling well in blue collar communities that, were, that they rely on to get a majority in the House or, or in the Senate. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure, it involves risk you know, whichever way it goes. But I can see Biden playing a really, really surprisingly strong hand on infrastructure. And that would explain why you said uh, no to the question whether President Biden will preside over democratic laws in the midterm election, right? If, if the things come together, as you just suggested, outlined, I suppose that would explain why there's not going to be a, a loss, but maybe even a, a gain, which is a very unusual uh, thing to accomplish. And Aloha, on the other hand, uh, has said that there will be a uh, significant loss, or at least some loss, let's you know, let's soften uh, it a little bit, some loss in the midterm elections. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, the um, Democrats had hope for a landslide in the last election, and they didn't get it, they didn't get anywhere near it. So I think they sort of misread the, the voters. I also think that in general, voters tend to be, you know, not too comfortable with the trifecta that they thought they would get, right? The presidency the, and both houses of Congress, which I mean, so I, I doubt that they would give him that um, in the midterm elections. Um, also, we have the issue of the voter suppression laws that David uh, mentioned briefly. And I think that, you know, depending on how legal action goes, this might play a real role in, uh, in certain areas. And then I think, you know, you might have a turnout problem in the midterms. It was an exhausting last election season, you know, <laughs> we had record turnout, but I don't know if we can really uh, replicate that. And that was something that really helped also the Democrats, especially in, in certain areas. And if you look at Stacey Abrams' work, it's really been crucial that, you know, the way that she, um, her team has been able to mobilize voters and register voters. I don't know if there's going to be that kind of energy going into the midterms. And I think that probably will be. Um, costly for Democrats, right? It, it might have an, an uneven impact on the two parties. So those are just some reasons why I don't, I don't necessarily see it happening. And, you know, we're talking about few numbers we have some uh, retirement situations too, right? We have to see how, how many seats are really competitive, uh, how many seats have incumbents. But overall, I, I, I would guess no landslide. And I think it would, might be difficult to, um, to increase the majority. Now, I do want to talk about foreign policy. Uh, but before we do that, uh, maybe you could give me just some brief responses um, or sort of elaborate on something that I found uh, interesting because there was a divergence in, in your responses to the crystal ball questions. And maybe keep it uh, brief before we move on uh, to, to foreign policy. Um, uh, and uh, here, um, uh, well, uh, David was the one uh, who was uh, who was less optimistic, and uh, you know maybe uh, everyone, no one that wants to be uh, wants to be optimistic today. So you know, I have some good news for you, David. You were quite pessimistic when it comes to the question of um, 
of, uh, of violent action uh, against Biden and his agenda. And he said, this is something, not just, uh, not only will there be, or might there be, um, you know, resistance and speed protests, um, but there might be um, a violent action against Biden and his agenda. And Laura said, no, neither street protests nor violent action. So why do you think, Laura, that is? Why are we not going to see that? And why did you think, David, that we are going to see that sort of thing? Right. Um, so, I mean, this is another thing where I, I very much hope that I'm wrong. But if you take the temperature of the Republican Party right now, there is a radicalized anti-democratic wing. And I don't mean anti-democratic as opposed to the Democratic Party. I mean, they don't believe in democracy. This is dangerous and almost unprecedented in American history, at least modern American history. And I think that there is a very strong likelihood that there will be something, perhaps not on the scale of January 6th, but something comparable to it. You know, we could see a return to the sort of uh, far-right terrorism that characterized the 19, late 1980s and 1990s, uh, leading up to the Oklahoma City bombing. Of course, there are better surveillance. Uh, the FBI is pivoting towards night white white nationalism as a security threat. Uh, but I think that this is a possibility, a distinct possibility, given that there is an embrace of conspiratorial anti-government thought in the American mainstream right-wing media. You know, if you look at someone like Tucker Carlson, who is probably the most watched person on American news, he is extraordinarily extreme. You know, this is basically a, what's his face? A, Father Clogan, Clannon, uh, American neo-fascist radio person or fascist radio personality in the 1930s. Hi, listener. Quick interjection. I was thinking of Charles Edward Coughlin. He sucked. And now back to the show. This, I think, is setting the stage for some form of political violence or protest. Now, I don't think it's going to be effective, but given the fact that we have a large number of very prominent Republicans basically engaging in January the 6th denialism now, saying that it wasn't that big a deal, right? It was actually just a protest. And it's been all, you know, exaggerated by the left-wing media because they're all completely biased against President Trump and the election was stolen. It is a pressure cooker, right? And people, and it will eventually explode, I think. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully there will be a return of some sort of sanity, but I think there is a very dangerous element in right-wing politics in the United States. Yeah, that's interesting. I because I, I was wondering where you see the potential there. So I, I mean, I definitely agree that there is a dangerous white-wing extremism in the United States and uh, white supremacist nationalism that um, is prone to violence. So I, I think that's all right. The question that I had though in thinking about your question, Constantine, is what would be the trigger, right? I, I'm not sure I see the political trigger at the moment for, so, um, you know, isolated events of violence, like, uh, you know, I could imagine, but, you know, is it something that, that Biden would do? I find that sort of difficult to imagine. What he, what would he do that would, you know, be the the spark that lights the, the you know, the, the tinder? And I am thinking about the Capitol riots, right? We had that spark. There was an active instigation of that potential by the president. And I don't, I just don't, I'm, I'm not sure where that instigation would come from. That's what I don't yet see. So maybe around um, the next presidential campaign, 
you know, I think that might be a possibility, but I don't know, in, unless there is an event, I think that a lot of that pressure might dissipate and seep into other areas. And I don't know if that's, a, you know, that, uh, that doesn't make it better, right? So it could be that becomes more insidious in some ways, but that it would explode. I'm not sure. I, I, the thing is, I, I would, I am hard pressed to think of what kind of event would lead to that kind of explosion in the next four years, maybe something um, that we don't have on our radar screen, but I, I it's hard to imagine, for example, Biden being that that spark or anything that he says or does. Maybe, you know, I don't know, you know, if we want to really look in, in, into the future of potential events, you know, one thing that, that might be very dramatic is if we had a change of power, if, you know, something happens to Biden, for example, and Kamala Harris would become president, then, I mean, something like that, I think, might be um, a dramatic event that might unleash some of these tensions. But... I don't know. I'm not sure if I see any. My my, my two sort of scenarios where I could see this happening. uh, One is exactly what you've said. Biden dies in office and Harris becomes president. This would clearly, I think, be a trigger for white nationalists. The other way that I can see this happening is if there is a concerted movement to expand the Supreme Court to 13 seats, uh, in which case you would have, I think, a strong reaction from the sort of constitutionalist far right uh, that would see this as a violation of you know basic principles of government, which it really wouldn't be. Uh, but I can see that being a potential uh, spark. But the thing is, you know, it's it's hard to predict what's going to cause these things. Exactly as you said, uh, it seems bizarre that the you know the confirmation or the certification of the election results in the Senate is what sparked the January sixth riots. I mean, this is something that has happened in American politics repeatedly without anyone paying attention to it. But, but it no wasn't the certification. It was Trump going out to his supporters, telling them, right, to go. I, it, That's true. You I know, mean, there, like, there was a lot of, um, you know, agent agency there. It wasn't just- That's true. It's true. I mean, one of the things that I think will prevent sort of another fire like this breaking out in American politics is Donald Trump, right? What is he going to be doing in the next four years? If he continues to sulk in Mar-a-Lago and not do anything, then yeah, the chances of another thing like this happening are quite minimal. Uh, If he starts reasserting himself among his base, if he especially starts holding these rallies again, then perhaps we don't see it in Washington, D.C., but perhaps we see it in Tallahassee uh, or in sort of a state capital where he has very strong support uh, in reaction to some perceived slight from the Biden administration. Uh, So yeah, I think you're probably right on that, I don't think we're going to see something as big as January 6th again, but I can definitely see micro events like that happening again, or attempts to do things like political assassinations or acts of anti-government terrorism like the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, You know, barring sort of a concerted pivot from American intelligence agencies away from things like Islamic extremism towards white nationalism, these things are difficult to control and predict. And like, obviously, hope I'm wrong. Like it goes without saying, but I am very, very alarmed by this very dangerous uh, element in American politics at the moment. Now, the first hundred days uh, have clearly of, of the Biden administration have clearly focused on on matters of uh, domestic policy. Um, there has been there has been a um, there has been the, the the pandemic relief. There has been the American Rescue Plan. Um, there has been debate about uh, infrastructure in general. There has been debate about uh, 
uh, Green Deal policies or domestic policies. But at the same time, the writing on the wall as to what foreign policy will be like under Biden has also been pretty clear already. Uh, the signals are that this is going to be a more multilateral uh, administration. And this is an administration that will not only address foreign policy through the prism of what works domestically for the electoral base uh, of the president, at least that uh, would be my perception of what uh, has been uh, going on. Um, uh, but you guys, uh, not but, and you guys both uh, said uh, that uh, as far as foreign policy is concerned, um, even though there, 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 there have, has been this emergence of sort of a, a countervailing agenda to what we've seen in the past four years, uh, in the year 2040, when we look back, um, there is the, there's still going to be the Truman Doctrine and the Brezhnev Doctrine, and there might even still be America first as the Trump Doctrine, so to speak, uh, but there will not be a recognizable Biden Doctrine. Why is that, Laura? Well, I, you know, I don't, it's not really clear to me what the Biden foreign policy doctrine is. Um, so apart from, a, you know, a recommitment to allies and multilateralism, right, that's, um, those are the the key elements, but what does that mean in practice? I think um, it's not it's not yet clear. So there were a few high profile, but relatively easy steps that Biden took to recommit to multilateralism, like to rejoin the Paris Accord or the World Health Organization, and um, probably most significantly to try to get the Iran nuclear deal back on the table. But um, aside from that, you know, it's it's not entirely clear what what this means. This new multilateralism, and I think that and there's an interesting um, connection to domestic politics because, you know, we uh, in foreign policy there is traditionally or has traditionally been um, a pretty clear consensus around liberal internationalism across partisan lines and. Trump sort of called that into question, right? And you have the um, liberal internationalists who are up in arms saying that he, you know, uh, is withdrawing the United States from its global leadership role and withdrawing from multilateralism. But in doing those things and returning to protectionism, right, uh, turning his back on the, the consensus on free trade. But in doing that, I think Trump opened up a discursive space for more debate on these issues across partisan lines than, um, than we've had in the past. So what happened, so we know what happened on the right, right, with America first. Interestingly, what happened in the Democratic Party is that you also have now a split between those traditionalists, like Biden himself, the liberal internationalists, and the progressive wing of the party. And the progressive wing of the party, I think, sees foreign policy slightly differently than the traditional liberal internationalists. And I think um, in some strange ways, they are more in line with some of Trump's policies. So not certainly not the rhetoric of his policies, right, or the ideological spirit of it. But for example, um, they are not as committed to a strong role for the United States in, um, for example, military security operations or in extending the security umbrella. I mean, one of uh, one of Bernie Sanders' uh, foreign policy advisors um, wrote an interesting piece during the campaign where, in which he said, the United States needs to rethink the sustainability of its security commitments around the world, right? This is something that traditional foreign policy experts would, um, would never have said in the last several decades, right? Or that the United States does need to start pulling troops back from the rest of the world and they cannot sustain this kind of uh, engagement that it has had 
or even you know what people have called a, an overstretch in the world. And also, uh, progressives are for you know uh, a less neoliberal type of foreign policy, and they're um, more interested in trade that includes protections for workers and for the climate. Right. So. I don't think we're going to see these big free trade agreements uh, in this, or at least not in the same form that, you know, they had been negotiated in the past. So I, I think that the Biden administration is, it's not yet clear to me which part of the party is going to dominate in his foreign policy, his more traditionalist line or the more progressive um, line. I think in, in domestic policy, we've seen actually uh, surprisingly that the progressive have had, uh, you know, quite a strong impact on his policy. And I'm, um, Curious to see if we'll see that internationally as well, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's not really clear yet what uh, what it will look like because I'm not sure um, that there is clarity yet in his in his policies. One follow up question um, now. The, the, the distinction between the different sort of wings of the Democratic Party, I, I found that a very very interesting and important point. And you said that. You know, there is a sort of a left, a populist wing, if you want, a left populist wing in the Democratic Party that uh, actually uh, also has a populist foreign policy agenda that resonates with uh, with Trump's, uh, but obviously with, the, as you said, with, the diff with different rhetoric, different focus. Um, now, my question to you would be um, that sort of um, detraction from uh, the, 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 the reduced focus on um, on sort of international engagement by that left populist wing of the party, the desire to not overstretch in terms of security engagements and the things that you mentioned, is that a complete farewell to international engagement or is it just a call for international engagement by different means? Because it still leaves open the possibility to have America become or you know, be, you know, you know grow into uh, or back into its its role as a soft power, or you know, or reinforce that role as a soft power to become a, a global leader in climate change policies. And this is not the kind of stuff that you do with with uh, with with weapons and with uh, with troop presence, but that you do through other means. Um, how internationalist, I guess, is what I'm asking. How internationalist is the left wing uh, of the uh, Democratic Party? There uh, are they also Trumpists in that respect, uh, 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 or are they internationalists uh, in, in that respect? No, I think you're right. I think uh, you know, to, there's a big debate about what progressivist uh, foreign policy would mean, but I think that there is a commitment still to international engagement. I don't think it's you know total retrenchment, but I think it does look different. It does, you know, the, the idea of what, what does U.S. global leadership mean, really, is different. So leadership by sort of um, exemplary action, uh, rather than necessarily by taking on um, the lion's share of responsibilities. I think that there is an emphasis on, for example, um, more cooperation and burden sharing uh, with other States and um, and I think there is a call for reducing the resources that the United States spends in its foreign policy. So I don't know. Does that amount to um, retrenchment? I don't think so, and I don't think that that that's the argument being made. And certainly not Biden. Biden has you know has had a strong commitment to foreign policy throughout his career, and and he, you know he knows world leaders, and he's uh, I think active in foreign policy. I, I, it, no means does this mean that there will be sort of a retreat from the international stage, but I think that a rethinking of the United States' world, uh, role on that stage is something that 
um, the progressives are asking us to do, and in in some ways not similar to Trump. So, for example, you know when when Trump said that NATO is obsolete, right? He seemed to have broken all taboos that you can break in in foreign policy, and yet the, on you know the left progressives are also asking, well, how long should this commitment to NATO stand, right? And what does it really mean? So, I don't. I think that's not necessarily a return to isolationism. In fact, I think that Trump's policy was also not isolationist. I think it, it was, you know, highly engaged with the world, but just on different terms, right? Not in multilateralist terms. I also think that the United States was never an isolationist ever in its history. And I think it cannot be in the future because it's, um, you know, embedded in interdependent relations that are global. And, you know, this idea of decoupling um, may work for a few areas, but, um, a large scale that's not really going to be possible or practical. So really a, a complete retreat is not going to be, uh, I think, on the agenda. The question is, what does this leadership role look like? And as you said, maybe more soft power, an emphasis on diplomacy, an emphasis on also intermestic issues. So really focusing on how domestic issues can be leveraged or used in the international sphere and linking those up more, but with more of an emphasis on the domestic than the international. So I don't think it will be a retreat from U.S. leadership, but I think that a progressive agenda does call for something like a more modest understanding of U.S. global leadership than the liberal internationalist agenda, especially of the post-Cold War years, had in mind. Predicting Biden's foreign policy legacy right now, I think, is really quite difficult for the reasons that, uh, that Laura has been saying. We're in a period of, uh, I don't know, redefinition about what America's role in the world is. And my gut tells me that this is going to be quite pragmatic rather than doctrinaire over the next four years. But I do think we're going to see a significant change in America and how America engages with the world under Biden uh, in no small part, because I think this will be perhaps the first real post 9-11 war on terror presidency. Uh, and I was thinking about this today when I was contemplating Biden's first 100 days. Uh, we were as far away from 9-11 as the election of JFK was from Pearl Harbor. And this makes me feel incredibly ancient, but my students, my first year students were not born when 9-11 happened. And I think the American foreign policy establishment is going to have to start realizing that a lot of the past 20 years has been a missed opportunity. Uh, and that there have been significantly greater threats to America developing that were not in the Middle East or in Central Asia. Uh, and you can see this in the election campaign. There was a lot of talk about China and Russia, obviously. Uh, and if we extend our conception of security uh, beyond you know, the traditional, traditional parameters and talk about climate change, then we see that there is going to have to be a reorientation to much greater threats than uh, terrorists, right? Because, you know, it's the, the worst day that you could have with a enemy like Al-Qaeda is 9-11. The worst day that you have with, say, an aggressive China is much worse. And the worst day you can have with climate change is probably worse still. And this is going to require some serious thought about how America is going to engage the world uh, in the face of these challenges. And I don't think that the way in which American foreign policy has been conducted over the past 20 years is going to reassert itself post-Trump. There's going to have to be something that, what that looks like, I'm not entirely sure. I cer certainly think or agree that the intermestic is going to become more significant 
And you can already see this in discussions about what's happening on the southern border, right? Uh, you cannot decouple uh, immigration, clandestine immigration coming from Central America from what's been happening in Central American states uh, during, which is in America's sphere of influence, right? Uh, these are highly interrelated. If America wants to control clandestine immigration, it needs to have a new policy relating to states in Central America where these people are coming from, right? Uh, this separation between the domestic and the international just isn't going to play in a world where there is deep and persistent integration and interdependency. Uh, but I don't know whether we'll see a doctrine simply because I'm not sure anyone has yet articulated a coherent set of foreign policy principles that can deal with the challenges that America and indeed the world will be facing in the 2020s and 2030s. Uh, so yeah, no Biden doctrine, but a significant change in American foreign policy, I think, is in the offing. Uh, but I'm not convinced that it will be, I, I don't think it'll be isolationists for the exact reasons that Laura was saying, right? These, you can't be isolationist about these issues. The fascinating thing about both of your points was that you focused on uh, the issue of interdomestic sort of uh, interactions, communicating, oh, I don't know what the word is, communicating, what's the, what's the English term for that? Uh, communicating vessels, right? It's it's like communicating vessels, right? It's the uh, it's the it's the the the, the interaction between uh, domestic policies, uh, and then the the migration example that that David gave, I think, was a great example. And this makes me think that maybe um, there will be, in addition to the focus on China, which seems to be unavoidable um, as something to sort of that that just that just comes up as an issue. Maybe one uh, issue um, that might be in the focus of the Biden administration is. Uh, not so much a, a renewed focus on multilateralism, but a rediscovery of regional integration in North and Central America. Um, because that, to me, seems to be the way in which the European Union tries to deal with its migration issues. They don't do it very well always, um, but there's at least a policy commitment to uh, dealing also with the, the reasons for migration, the sources of migration, and in the United States, that is not so much on the agenda. So is this something um, that, that, that might happen? A, a renewed focus on regional integration, maybe not in the, in the, in the sense of, a, of, a, of an extension of uh, what NAFTA used to be and, and beyond that um, into some sort of European Union-like uh, entity, but maybe a bit more modest uh, sort of um, reinvigoration of, um, of, of, of multilateralism in a, in a regional context. Is that something that, that, that we might see, Laura? Well, I think it's a really interesting point about multilateralism. So here's my take. I think that actually large scale universal multilateralism is not going to be the future. And I, that's where I also see um, sort of a difficulty in really understanding Biden's foreign policy, because he has made that really uh, a key word in his foreign policy, right, a return to multilateralism. And yet, if I look at the issues out there and the actors out there, I think it's going to be really difficult to return to this sort of large scale universal multilateralism like the WTO tried to be, uh, you know, the UN organizations, the WHO. Um, I think that what we're going to see is rather um, proliferation of many lateral organizations. And I'm not sure they're going to be regional. So they might be regional, but I think that they'll probably be more differentiated than that. So I think that we will see more groupings of like-minded states and those like-minded states might find themselves in a similar region, but they might simply have common interests on a particular topic and that will bring them together. So 
I see international cooperation moving forward rather in small groups of states who can find policy agreement. And I think that these states are going to try to impose those agreements on others to the extent that they can. And where they can't, then we will find uh, fragmentation of governance regimes. So, you know, I, on climate, for example, Biden held this climate summit virtually, right? And um, he made some big commitments from the United States, but it's really, there's no mechanism, right, for these international promises to be kept to. And it's, I think, a big question whether China will keep to these uh, promises and whether they're on the same international page or not. Um, you know, they're reinvesting in coal, for example. And I could imagine that climate uh, policy will move forward rather in these uh, smaller fragmented groups, which, I mean, we've seen some of this already in climate policy. And I think we see this in other um, in other areas as well. I think we see this in the United States' approach to China as well. You know, the period of trying to engage China in these large-scale universal organizations has basically come to the end, at least for the United States. I mean, I don't know, maybe Europe is still trying to do that, but I think for the United States, Pompeo as Secretary of State essentially declared engagement as a failed policy. And as far as I can tell, um, Biden's Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is following a similar kind of path, right, in saying that we need to um, engage a small set of actors who are important to us in, in Asia, the Quad security dialogue, to think about how to move forward in security in the Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific region. So I think that it's this kind of grouping, small groupings around like-minded actors, similar kinds of actors, actors with similar interests, um, or even similar characteristics. Biden has also said that he'd like to hold a summit of democracies. Right? And the question is, who's going to be in there? Right? Who, who gets to join? Will China be invited or not? So I do think that rather than this large-scale multilateralism, we will see something like these smaller groupings, and I don't know if they'll exclusively be regional or if they'll sort of revive regionalism. I'm sort of more doubtful there, but um, but that might be one element of it, to the extent at least that we have overlapping interests among regional actors. Yeah, I remember the uh, the leak of democracies. That was something that John McCain actually uh, pushed very hard in in his uh, in his campaign uh, for for president. Um, uh, but maybe then there would also be thematic groupings uh, that are more ad hoc or, or I mean, does this mean ad hoc uh, necessarily uh, or does it, does it, can it also in, involve sort of more long-term interactions or, or sort of multilateralism? I think that we are seeing more ad hoc groupings. We're seeing more informal groupings and we're seeing more groupings of actors that are not exclusively state, right? Not only intergovernmental groupings. And I think that's part of um, the, you know, the transition that we're in as a, as a global system where different kinds of actors are important players and have to be somehow integrated. And the, you know, post-1945 institutional infrastructure doesn't allow for a lot of room for those actors to be involved. So they don't have to be ad hoc. They can be institutionalized. They can be formalized. But we do see an increase. I mean, if the empirical literature at least seems to indicate that we have more informal groups happening in uh, at the international level. And I think that we have what, what people are calling now hybrid complexes. So regime complexes that include different kinds of actors at different levels. And those are, they tend to be less formalized than the international bureaucracies that uh, we know from the post-World War II um, institutional landscape. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would completely agree. The 
global political ecosystem is going to become much more complicated, I think, as the 21st century progresses. And, you know, the example that I would give to my students is regarding the World Health Organization. When America briefly left it, its key funder or its largest funder became the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation rather than a state. Uh, and this is characteristic of an international system that shouldn't even be described as international, right? It's, it's not between nations. We have private actors, we have regional actors. Uh, our post-1945 uh, image of global politics just isn't fit for purpose anymore. And that makes things interesting if you're a political scientist, uh, but it makes things confusing if you're a, a normal human being uh, hoping to make sense of the mess that happens out, out there in the world. Um, yeah, I think uh, regarding regionalism, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know about regionalism. And part of me, when you sort of put this question, will there be greater regional uh, cooperation between America and say Southern and Central America? Part of me is just like, well, you know, you have to consider the history of the United States in that region, which is not particularly good. And then immediately in the other side of my mind was just like, yeah, but it's not like the Germans didn't have a problematic relationship with their European neighbors uh, in you know, the post-war era. So you know, perhaps these regional constellations can come together where there is strong self-interest for each of the characters. Now, is there strong self-interest for greater hemispheric cooperation between North and South America and Central America? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's not really my area of expertise, but it seems that there are not easily reconciled interests between various actors in the hemisphere. So I think we are more likely to see alignments along ideology or around political priorities rather than on geography necessarily, especially on climate, uh, which transcends geographical bounds, right? So let's close the circle a little bit back to the electoral implications of all of this. What does this mean for the future? Because we're very future oriented and that's why we constantly talk about who of us is more optimistic or pessimistic and a ray of sunshine maybe on occasion. Um, so during the Trump years, um, the international trade policy or international engagement and the question thereof was a, was a, actually a key appeal uh, of Trump to the electorate in that he said, you know, we need to get, you know, get out of that. Um, we need America first trade policies. Um, and that was part of his appeal to the electorate. Now, has that changed uh, uh, actually? Uh, is that going to change during the Biden years? Are we going to get back to this sort of encapsulation almost of foreign policy in that it is sort of in that it is removed from vote choices? Does any of this foreign policy stuff matter for how voters rather than political scientists will in the end judge Biden's success? Well, I mean, the conventional wisdom is that foreign policy is not too important for American voters. I think that's still true for the most part. I think that, you know, voters, and especially today when we talk about the various crises that are happening in the United States along the lines of uh, the health, health crisis with COVID, the economic crisis as a result of COVID and um, the uh, protests around racial, racial justice and racial injustice. I think that foreign policy is sort of pretty far down on the list for many voters. On the other hand, there are a number of issues that Americans care about that are related to foreign policy. As David said, the question of immigration Right, and um, the question of um, the consequences of globalization, the relationship to China uh, for the, the economic interests of Americans, I think are, are ones that are uh, of interest to Americans. But more sort of in a, in a broad 
broad scope perspective rather than in the details of foreign policy. I do think that Trump, though, has done a number of things that are going to stay with us. And as I said, one of them is to open up this question of what should America's role in the world be? It, obviously, it's not a new question, but I think that the way he posed it opened up some you know, room for new answers, right? Maybe, maybe the commitment to NATO is not forever. Maybe the United States does really need to pull out, uh, pull its troops out of many places in the world. You know, Biden, I think, um, uh, even under the Obama administration, had thought seriously about the role of the United States troops in Afghanistan. But I think that, you know, some of Trump's critical rhetoric around what he called the forever wars uh, also left policy space for Biden to make this move now, right? And uh, an another place where I think we see this is Trump's um, discussion of free trade and free trade agreements. I think that he we saw that in 2016, Hillary Clinton, who had helped to negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, right, essentially had to move away from it because Trump found a way to critique it for not supporting American workers. And, and essentially, she had to say that she, in the end, didn't support it, even though she helped negotiate it, right? And I think that we see this with Biden as well, that he will probably not be a strong supporter of this kind of liberal, open trade uh, agreement going forward. Not to say that he won't be in favor of free trade, but it will probably come with more conditions. So again, thinking about impact on climate, thinking about its impact on workers, thinking about its impact on labor mobility, and things that were not really part of the free trade agenda over the last few decades. So I do think that um, you know some things have changed as a result of the way Trump talked about foreign policy and those will stay with us. Um, but in terms of the American voter, I think that for the most part, you know, it will come down to focus on domestic issues and it will be up to the policymakers to um, make the bridge between the, the foreign and the domestic um, so that, you know, what happens uh, internationally, um, you know, certainly has an impact on, on domestic politics, but uh, it won't be a, a seen as a clear and a direct link, I think, for most for most voters. One of the things that really struck me in Biden's speech was the moment where he said there's no reason for windmill turbines to be manufactured in Beijing that could be manufactured in Philadelphia. And I think that encapsulates very much Biden's attitude towards international cooperation and how he's going to sell it to the American people, right? It's not going to be about you know, the free trade agreements they characterized in the 1990s. It's going to be about selling jobs to Americans to push forward the green agenda, uh, which could do something like create industrial jobs in the United States, which would be a very popular policy to have indeed. Now, whether foreign policy wins elections, you know, as Laura said, you know, the traditional wisdom is that it doesn't. And I would have to say there would have to be a huge sea change in how the American voter conceptualizes themselves in the world to see any sort of difference from this, right? There would have to be a strong connection between uh, their self-interest in terms of jobs and, say, greening the entire globe, right? And I don't think this is going to happen. Uh, people generally don't think that big, right? People think about their lives. And uh, foreign policy is one of those big abstract things that people generally just don't care that much about unless there's a terrorist attack or a war or a crisis. So I'm, I don't think it's going to have a big effect directly, but it could indirectly have an effect on how people vote in the United States 
based on how Biden's foreign policy affects green jobs and how it affects migration, especially on the southern border. Uh, so those would be where we could possibly see some indirect influence. Yeah, I mean, this stuff can happen faster than, than one thinks. Um, I mean, I remember uh, as far as the, the issue of European integration is concerned, that there's, uh, it was also part of that conventional wisdom that um, you know, Europe, uh, the, the issue of European integration is shielded from voters' influence. You know, voters don't care and political parties are not going to politicize the issue. Um, because, you know, their own parties are too divided over it. Uh, but then what happened is uh, there were all these challenger parties that, that, that rose on the issue of European integration. It has been politicized to such an extent that now it might become part of, you know, like an entirely new cleavage of political conflict. At the very least, it is, has become a major issue. It has been um, enmeshed, uh, combined with other issues, especially migration. And then it is particularly powerful uh, as a as an electoral appeal. So I think I, I do agree with uh, your notes of caution, but I think this sort of politicization of foreign affairs can, can happen more quickly than, than one expects, but probably not in a long-term way because the European Union is gonna stay with us um, for better or worse. And uh, it can always be politicized in one way or another. Um, um, whereas um, in, the, in the case of, um, of sort of countries that are not as strongly integrated um, in you know, uh, regional uh, integration organizations such as the United States, it depends more on, on sort of political opportunities like there being a migration crisis at the Southern border uh, or there suddenly being the issue of uh, international trade and, and American jobs and, and fitting into a larger agenda. Um, so I, I do not try to uh, make the point that sort of I disagree with, with, with your sort of your general uh, that you made, but I think we should be on the lookout uh, for sort of potential political openings and opportunities for foreign affairs to become uh, to become a major issue. Um, and maybe the thematic um, integration around ad hoc interests that Laura mentioned, that's one route into that sort of thing, because it seems to me that, you know, if that is going to happen, and, and I think you, you were very convincing in that respect, then maybe that also opens up a sort of a quicker route into sort of domestic debates about this. So now we have uh, talked about uh, Biden's first 100 days in office. We've talked about domestic policy, we've talked about the electoral implications, we talked about the future of American democracy, we talked about the future of multilateralism and the role of America in uh, that uh, multilateral interconnectedness. Uh, now, we've also talked about the institution of talking about a president's performance in his or her first 100 days in office. Now that we've done that, uh, what do you think? Is this a good thing to do? Uh, uh, is it a good institution to have or should we discard uh, that institution and you know, do it now, but then never do it again? Well, I, so you're asking about the first 100 days, right, this tradition. Well, you know, as I said, I think that you can take it as a moment to reflect on a president's leadership style and agenda. And, you know, I think moments of reflection are always good and periodically we should undertake them. So I think that it is a good thing. And I think, uh, you know, just as President Biden had to give an address to Congress and has to do so periodically, it's good to have periodic moments where we sort of sit and reflect collectively about what's happening politically. I think that the danger would be to put too much weight on what has happened so far and also to see in that some kind of path 
for the future development of policy, because I think many things, as you said, can change, and there are so many conditions that are important for how things will develop that, you know, that it's nothing that's written in stone, right? But as a moment of reflection, I think uh, it's a good thing to have a collective moment where we all consider what has happened and where are we going? What path are we on? Who's taking us there and how? Yeah, I, I also support retaining the 100 days as a mark, simply because I love random custom, you know, customs that develop simply for no real reason, uh, but provide us with moments of reflection. And uh, perhaps this is from living in the United Kingdom too long, with all of its strange customs around politics, I actually really enjoy having just a random moment where we sit down and we think a little bit systematically about how politics is evolving in the United States. And the first hundred days seems to be, you know, a good tradition of really sort of thinking about a new administration. Uh, so I, I think it has a, has a lot of value, even though it comes from a completely sort of fairly random point uh, in American history. How about you, Constantine? Are you happy to keep on, keep on keeping on with 100 days? I'm a traditional kind of guy. So, you know, there's a tradition and uh, it has worked, you know, why, why try to fix it, right? If it's not broken. So I think this, uh, this one is one that uh, is definitely worth preserving. I absolutely agree. All right. Well, maybe we'll all get together in four years time to talk about perhaps the next hundred days, but barring that eight years time, I guess, uh, if it's only a first term custom. Well, there you have it, listener. Be sure to scribble that into your diary for four to eight years from now. But thanks for tuning in today. What would we do without you? Well, I mean, probably not record this podcast, I guess. Now, be sure to follow us on Twitter at The City Politics. You can also follow Constantine at K underscore Vossing, and I'm at GD Blunt. I'd like to thank our guest, Laura Ann Viola, for joining us today and providing some world-class analysis. Be sure to check out her book, The Closure of the International System, How International Institutions Create Political Equalities and Hierarchies. And keep an eye out for trust and transparency in an age of surveillance. This has been the City Politics Podcast the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Take care, everyone. Oh, yeah, and like, follow, review, you know the drill. And heck, if we get a thousand subs, I might just sing you a little song. But you gotta earn it. Bye. <laughs>